Well, as we can tell, <clears throat> this section of verses which spans the section that Matthew read for us, from, so from verse 19 up through verse 42 of John chapter 1, uh, this is focused on the ministry of John the Baptist. And we started framing this section of, of John the Baptist's ministry last week by speaking about the value of examples. Uh, so in John's gospel, one central truth that surfaces among a few, but one central truth is that uh, Jesus was sent by God into the world to save us. And while Jesus was sent to save, as we come to a knowledge of the reality of what Christ has accomplished, as we come to believe in Jesus, he then sends us out into the world to bear witness to him. So the one who was sent for us then sends us out to bear witness to his saving work as we go about our, our daily lives out in the world. And that's very central to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, bearing witness to who he is. And as we look at the ministry of John the Baptist, we see that he serves as an example of what it really means to be sent as a witness for Jesus. On the one hand, John the Baptist is entirely unique in his witness to Jesus, and we need to say that. Um, we talked about this last time, how John the Baptist uniquely fulfills what the Lord spoke about through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, and that John is this voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. So John was unique in that his preaching and baptizing ministry was used by God to address the hearts of the people in his day, uniquely preparing them to be repentant, to be turning toward Jesus who had come uh, to save. Uh, so John was unique in that way. However, we also know that John was a kind of model. Uh, his example of witnessing to Jesus gives us a picture of what Jesus calls all his followers to do as we go out into the world for him. And so while John the Baptist is unique in his prophetic witness, in, in a sense, uh, there, there is another level here in which he's also a critical example for us in his witnessing. Because by watching John engage faithfully as he points people to Jesus, uh, we can be helped in our, own, in our own understanding of the task that is uh, that is set before us as witnesses to Jesus. And it's that theme of witnessing to Jesus that continues to be the focus of, of John the Apostle's writing here as he's telling us about John the Baptist. Uh, last week we studied the first part of, of, of this John the Baptist section under the broad heading of, of what we might say is John the Witness and his identity. So we focused on John's identity there uh, where we had those, that delegation from Jerusalem coming and questioning John. Uh, this week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 29 to 34 under the heading, we might call it John the Witness and His Message. So we're going to specifically focus on John's message this morning. And then next week, we'll finish out through verse 42, Lord willing, and speak about John the Witness and the effectiveness of his message. Uh, so there's an effect that's, that's laid out there for us. So that's where things are going. We've had identity. This morning, we have message. Next week, we're going to have effect. Um, no doubt, as we consider the concept of witnessing about Jesus, we can feel angst around the subject. Uh, we know as followers of Jesus, we're called to witness to him. Jesus will say that later in, in chapter 20 of John's gospel, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Uh, we, we know we've been sent out into the world by Jesus and for Jesus. And in a sense, there's a, there's a simplicity in that task for us as gospel witnesses. We know a main thing about following Jesus is to go out into the world and, and demonstrate through the kinds of lives we live and declare through the kinds of things we say that Jesus is the one who brings the salvation we need. So, so in a sense, there's a simplicity to that, even, 
even in saying something as simple as our witness is lived out as we declare and demonstrate Jesus' new life to the world around us. There's, there's something very simple about that. But, but as simple as it may be to say that, uh, the act itself of witnessing feels much more complicated. It, it, it can be much more anxiety-producing, at least for most of us. Um, so, so, so we start to, to wrestle with, this, with these kinds of things. When do we speak to our neighbor about Christ? We know we're called to do that. When do we do that? How do I speak to my family member about Jesus? Is it appropriate in that, in that one particular setting with a friend or a co-worker to bring up Jesus and, and what he's done? Uh, did I miss an opportunity because I was too timid and I remained quiet about Jesus? So now has that opportunity passed and I won't have it again. Uh, does my own understanding of Jesus need to be full and complete and really rounded out before I ever try to do any of this kind of evangelism work that, that, that I know I, I ought to do? All these things start to flood into our minds as we consider what it means to, to bear witness to Jesus. And while John the Baptist's example here doesn't give all the answers or put aside all our uneasiness with regard to that task, what the Baptist example does do is provide some main truth just to help us as we frame these sorts of things. So, so we had some of that help last week as we thought about John's own identity as, as a witness to Jesus. This morning, we have more help along these lines as we consider John's message. Uh, there's content here that, that we can be helped to, to have some clarification on in terms of bearing witness to Jesus. So um, what we'll do is we'll, we'll work through this again, verse 29 to uh, 34 will be our section for today. And as we first look at verse 29, we're going to say something about the center of the message, the center of John's message. In fact, I'll just read verse 29 again for us. There we're told the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's verse 29. Um, so as verse 29 begins, we see that John the Apostle, our gospel writer, he marks out some time divisions, which we'll actually see happening quite regularly up into, up into chapter 2. And there will be an occasion, I think, where we'll have to talk about some of John's reasoning for that. But we have time divisions. There was the next day, and then there was the next day, and then there was the next day. We start to see that play out. And, and on this particular day, the next day, as John is engaged in his ministry, we see this is following the previous day where that delegation from Jerusalem had come and questioned John about who are you, who do you think you are, engaging in this kind of baptizing ministry. So he'd had that kind of confrontation there. Now we're into the following day of ministry, and we're told that John sees Jesus coming toward him, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, so John's preaching and he's baptizing. He's going about this activity, and into the midst of that activity, Jesus is coming, and John, as it were, no, no doubt points his finger at him and says, look, there he is. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we, we know this isn't the first time that John the Baptist has engaged in his prophetic capacity publicly with Jesus. Uh, John will speak in the next verses, in fact, about seeing the Spirit come to rest upon Jesus. That's a reference to when John baptized Jesus on an earlier occasion. Um, so, so this isn't the first public interaction between John and Jesus. But this is an occasion that punctuates the nature of John's public message about Jesus. So, so as Jesus appears in the context of John's preaching, John directs everyone's attention to him and defines who exactly Jesus is in terms of his message. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
there, there's something central about that message for John. We know John has been preparing people. He's been calling people to repent. He's been calling people to turn back to God's way, all of these things. Now Jesus is on the scene, and this is John's central message, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and, and part of the way we know this is John's central message as he sees Jesus is that the next day, so by the time we get into verse 35, and there John tells us another day is occurring, the next day we're told in verse 35 that Jesus is passing by, and what is John saying? Well, John is saying the exact same thing again. Look, the Lamb of God. This is what John is on about when, when, when Jesus is appearing on the scene. So when it comes to John's witness here, we have something of his main proclamation, his central message which re with regard to the person of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it repays us to think about that for a moment. Um, here, here's, here's the center of John's witness about Jesus. And, and as, we, as we hear this central message, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as we hear that, especially if we've become fairly familiar with the, with the biblical storyline and the picture that's here of a lamb taking away sin, we can almost pass over John's statement too quickly uh, in, in that sense, if there's just a sense of familiarity there. Um, as, as we think about John's statement, the, the truth of it is, is plain in a sense that is biblical. We, we can be used to it if we're reading our Bibles. John's central message about Jesus focuses on this picture that comes to us throughout the, picture, uh, throughout the scriptures of a, of a sacrifice that's necessarily offered on behalf of sinful people to make atonement or to make a satisfactory payment for sin before God. This is prescribed in Leviticus and Exodus. Uh, this sacrificial lamb or animal um, is, is, is the central imagery that we have throughout the Bible. And here John is picking that up. Look, here's the, here's the lamb from God who takes away our sin. And while this picture might be familiar to us, we don't, we don't want to pass over it so quickly that we lose uh, either the, the gravity or the necessity of the truth that it represents, even as necessary as it is in John's own day. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, what even is sin? When, when, you, when you witness to your coworker, do you speak about sin? If, if we use the word sin, we, we often can get strange looks. You know, isn't sin just that archaic ideal that religion uses to manipulate the masses? Well, what even, what even is the sin that's being taken away? I was at a, at a, a conference a number of years ago, maybe even 15 years ago now. It was here in Portland. It was held at Hinson Church. And the guest preacher, he uh, gave an exposition, and then he held a question and answer session at the end of his exposition. Um, I don't even remember what, what the scripture was or what the, what the specific what the subject was that he was preaching on, but, uh, but he held this question and answer session afterward. And there was this line of a few people that formed behind a microphone. And, and the first questioner was, was, was a middle-aged man, and, and he was kind of... He looked a little angsty. He was nervous, maybe just to speak in front of all these people who were there. But, but his question was very simple, though it had a bit of an edge to it. I just remember his question was, what even is sin? What even is sin? So at some point, the speaker must have addressed something about sin. What even is sin? And, and you could almost hear the whole room you know, whole, whole, take a breath. It's such a huge question, and it's one that, that we almost forget to ask, but it feels so weighty to ask and, and necessary to ask. Um, politically incorrect to ask, even depending on the context, what, what even is sin? And the pastor giving the talk, he was very insightful. He was gentle. He could tell the question was very pressing for the man and it was troubling him. 
And so he gave a number of helpful definitions. So he spoke, uh, I just remember from 1 John 3, talking about how, how sin is lawlessness. You know, John says that there. So, so it's living without regard for God's instruction. That's what sin is. And then, he, and then he gave an answer from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. And he spoke about how, how our rebellious, we have hearts turned against God and rebellious inside our hearts and that we're born far from a place of peace with God because we have hearts turned against God and rebellion against Him. I remember he quoted R.C. Sproul, who talks about sin as cosmic treason against God. That's worthy of judgment. God, the creator of all things, we've turned against him, saying, I'm going to be in charge of myself. So there's this cosmic treason element. And, and, and so he went on on this for a while. And then what was amazing about, about all these answers in the Q&A was that by the end of it, again, you, you could just feel the weight of all of that in the room. Sin is such a heavy subject. It's such a weighty thing to speak about. It's such a dark thing in a sense. It's so big, it's beyond our capacity to solve. But I remember how in the midst of that weighty description of sin, separation from God, all of this, when the preacher was done, the man who asked the question seemed genuinely relieved. He, he was smiling by the end of it, which almost seems awkward, but, but, but he needed that clarification. And, and he walked back to his seat. I just remember he looked, he looked a little lighter as he walked back to his seat. He needed to understand what we're talking about when we speak about sin. He, he, didn't, he didn't get it. What is sin? And as we think about our own witness, we need to be prepared to define it for people in these kinds of ways. Our present culture is distanced from the culture of John the Baptist. The, the, the notion of sin isn't really all that present, at least not all that present in a, in a significant kind of daily way. But even while John's cultural situation was different, we do see him use an expression here that contextually in the Jewish setting would have provided a clarifying reminder of what sin really is. John doesn't see Jesus coming up and saying, look, there's the one who's going to pay for our sin. There's the one who's going to save us from our sin. But he uses purposefully this picture here that would have been a potent picture for the Jewish community to help clarify what exactly he means when he speaks this way about Jesus. This Lamb of God language, it might be passed over quickly if we're used to our Bibles, or it might just be confusing if it's a new word picture for us. But for John's context, it would have been immediately clarifying. It would have reminded people what this sin situation is. Even in terms of their daily life, according to the law of God, every morning and evening, still during John's time as he's ministering, every morning and evening, a lamb was offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the people in the temple. Every day, morning and night. This was daily stuff for them. It was prescribed in Exodus 29. You can read about it. So, so this lamb imagery here, it brings up a picture that runs all through the Old Testament scriptures and would be very present in the lives of these people on a daily basis. It brings up this picture that reflects the fact that animals are offered on behalf of the people because a price must be paid for sin. Sin requires a death price, right? Sin is cosmic treason. And the wages of sin is death. So, so to go against the God who made us is to be in a place of deserving eternal separation from him in, in judgment. It's that death picture. But, but all through the Old Testament, there is this imagery of God providing a way for people to be set right with him. God will make a way for people to have communion with him, for people to be in relationship with him, despite the fact that we have fallen far from the glory he's called us to live out. So in that context, sacrifices were made. The death of a lamb in the place of sinful people signified peace with God. It didn't purchase peace with God ultimately. Only Jesus does that. 
but the imagery pointed forward to the sufficiency ultimately of what Jesus would do. And so here John's statement rings with extraordinary significance. Jesus is the Lamb of God. You know that stuff going on in our temple, morning and night, all of that, all of that that's happening. Jesus is the one. All of that is pointing forward to, John is saying. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember what world means in John's gospel. The world's not bigness but badness in John's gospel. The sin that plagues the world separated from God is paid for. That debt is paid for by Jesus for all who will trust in him. He's the ultimate lamb from God who will pay the price for all our badness as we yield to him in faith. Uh, really, in this way, John the Baptist is continuing to tie truth together from the prophet Isaiah. John, uh, John the Baptist is the witness from Isaiah 40. You remember from last week, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John is that witness. Um, but Jesus is the sin bearer of Isaiah. So we keep going through Isaiah. We get into Isaiah 53. Just listen to verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 53. He, that is Christ who comes. Isaiah, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion, God said. So Jesus is the Lamb of God who pays the price for our rebellion against God. As, as John the Apostle speaks about John the Baptist's ministry, we're showing that this is central. John speaks about Jesus in this way, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and in our own witness to Jesus, this remains the most central thing we can ever speak about. Sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Sin is to look at what God says and say what he calls right is wrong and what he calls wrong is right. That's, that's, what, that's what sin is. And as humanity, we are absolutely overrun by it. I do the things I shouldn't do and I don't do the things I should. That was in our confession this morning. Right? I think the things I shouldn't think and I don't think about the things I should. Right? God, calls, God, God calls for purity and I know my own pollution. God calls for faithfulness, and I don't trust in him. Sin, it stains us, and worse, it alienates us, it condemns us, and God is just. And rebellion against him as creator and master of the universe, giver of all good life itself, to rebel against him is death. But the message of the gospel is, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The center of the gospel message is that Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice to pay our debt of sin. So much so that Paul can talk in Colossians about all our sin being forgiven in Colossians. It's all been nailed to the cross. That debt has been canceled, Paul says. Not just the big sins, and then we need to do something to make all the rest of the little stuff right. You know, we do the sweeping up, Jesus takes care of the big stuff. No, all of our sins forgiven through Jesus. So, so, so to trust in Jesus, to yield to him in our weakness, frailty, and failure, we say, I need you to save me. And that means that all the wrongs we have, we have committed or will commit, are eternally paid for by what he has done sufficiently on the cross, and it's proved by the fact he rose again. Death couldn't hold him, the price has been paid. And now before God, our consciences are completely clean. And in fact, more than that, the Lord looks upon our lives and grants Christ's own righteousness to us. This is an amazing truth. He looks upon you and he says, there's somebody with the purity of Jesus because of what Christ has done. 
And this is this is the center of the message. So, so just just listen to these words of of Isaac Watts, one of his hymns, and he, he speaks about this. Here stands a one. He says, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. Right? Now, now just just thinking on that, we, we might not have have been trusting in altars uh, from the sacrificial system of Judaism, but. But, but we can find ourselves looking to have other things wash away the stain, to rid myself of the guilty conscience that plagues me, that, that type of thing. But none of those, none of those uh, uh, things can do it, Watts is saying. Uh, so now listen to what he writes next. So not, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. Then he says, but Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. So Jesus is the better lamb. He's the one who actually, finally, and completely takes away sin. Those sins of the Old Testament system, those sacrifices of the Old Testament system, those alternatives, even we may look for to find peace for our guilty conscience, they can never provide that peace for our conscience. But Christ of nobler name and richer blood takes all our sins away. So Watts ends the hymn by saying, Believing, we rejoice. To see the curse removed, we bless the lamb with cheerful voice. And sing his wondrous love. So that's, that's the sentiment. That's to give it to us in poetry. But let me give it to you in another way. And I've read this to you before. But this is, this is D.A. Carson. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic. He would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment. He would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was p political stability. He would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And he sent us a savior. So, so here's the center of John's message. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the one who saves. Look, there he is. He's the one we need. And this is the message not only we need to hear again and again and again and again in our own Christian lives. But this is also the message we take out into the world with us as we seek to speak to people about the sufficiency of what's offered in the good news about Jesus and the gospel. So that's the center of John's message. Uh, now, uh, and these two, last two points will be shorter. That's helpful to know. Uh, we want to also say something about the power of John's message and then say something about the conviction that underpins it. So let's first say something about the power of John's message now. Um, so John's message is effective. We're going to spend a lot of time watching that effect next week in verses 35 to 42. John's been saying, there's Jesus, what happens? People go follow Jesus. John's message is effective. Um, but what's amazing is that the message is not effective because John himself understands it completely. And, and for this, we have to zoom out a little bit within the broader gospel record. But this is important to notice, and it will help us make sense of things, even as we read the other gospel accounts and, and some of the, the information about John the Baptist's own ministry in, in other places. Because as we read through parts of Matthew and Luke, we see John the Baptist actually struggles with what Jesus has really come to do. Here John proclaims Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and yet when he's in prison later on, he actually sends messengers to Jesus asking if Jesus is really the one that Israel has been hoping for. John sends the question, are you the one? You know the verse. Or should we what? Should we look for another? 
I mean, I mean, imagine asking that question after all the ministry John had exercised, saying Jesus is the one, sends messengers saying, but, but are you? But that question comes because in the minds of so many during this time, the category of a suffering Messiah, even though Isaiah's texts are, are plain to us as we read them in retrospect, the idea of a suffering Messiah was not a category that, that, that most were comfortable with. The Messiah was going to be a warrior Messiah who would liberate Israel from her oppressors, namely Rome. So in Matthew 11 and Luke 7, we read how John sent messengers to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we wait for someone else? Like I'm in prison here and you're, and you're not doing much to overthrow the powers that be. I was expecting something more, something different. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do, isn't it? Or, or at least so I thought. Peter actually has the same problem later on when, when, when on the one hand he makes the extraordinary confession that Jesus is the Christ only then to rebuke Jesus about, about speaking uh, to his death on the cross. Right? That the Messiah was supposed to come and among other things bring massive political deliverance for Israel right now. John is in prison and he's confused. And yet, here, John speaks to the centrality of Jesus' mission. Not a warrior king, but a suffering lamb. The Isaiah 53 lamb who's going to come and be pierced for our transgressions and iniquity, the chastisement that would bring us peace would be placed upon him, all of those kinds of things. And, and, and so we just make that point to say that John had an extremely effective ministry and that people heard and responded and even left him to follow Jesus like he told them to. And we'll see that next time. In, in fact, it's even right after John asks the question of Jesus about whether he's really the one that Jesus turns around to those who, who are with him and he speaks so extraordinarily highly of John. Like there's never been anybody like John. So, so John has Jesus' own condom, uh, commendation. John's ministry was potent. And it was powerful despite the fact that John the Baptist did not have it totally figured out. He was trusting, he knew the truth, he, he was obedient, but he was still confused on certain points, even main points. His central message is here, behold the Lamb of God, but even his central message confused him at times. And that's worth saying, because it's a reminder to us that as we witness to the Jesus of the cross, the effectiveness of our own witness, that the fact that our witness is pleasing in Jesus' own sight even, that is not centered on our own full, complete, and comprehensive understanding of everything that's true about Jesus. I was in a conversation this week with, with a person, a godly man, who, who is really desiring to be a fruitful witness for Jesus in a certain set of very difficult circumstances, and he kept saying, I just don't feel equipped. I just don't feel equipped to do it. To which we all respond with a really big amen. Who does? Who does? Who feels equipped for these things? We feel weak. But when that's the case, we let John the Baptist be an encouragement to us. He didn't totally get it. He didn't totally get it. But the effective nature of John's ministry is not ultimately sourced in John's power. His effectiveness is not sourced in his knowledge or the perfection of his own understanding or maturity. The effective nature of his ministry is sourced in the power of the message of truth he proclaimed, however frail his understanding may have been. And for us, that's a wonderful truth. I don't have to get it all. I don't, I don't have to understand all the angles and all the pieces and all the cultural implications and all the nuanced explanations. No, but I need to know this. However weak or frail I may feel myself to be, I need to know this. The main message is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
if we know one thing for our witness, it's this. I am condemned in sin against God. Jesus comes and pays the price for that sin and saves me on the cross. And because of that, God promises eternal life. Jesus is the one who saves. The gospel message is the power of God to salvation. That's what, that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. The good news about Jesus is where the power is located by God. And that's the entirety of the biblical witness. The word of God about the Son of God brings people to salvation. Not my level of understanding or my felt sense of preparedness. I just make sure I know this. Sin condemns, Jesus saves. So we can, we can take heart as witnesses there. You know, Maybe there's somebody you've held off speaking to about Jesus just because you don't feel like you're equipped enough. We can know this. We, we are equipped with the message of truth that God works through powerfully to bring people from death to life. The good news about Jesus is the power. Whether we understand the whole thing or not, John didn't get it all, we don't get it all, but the power is not you or me getting it all. The good news about Jesus is the powerful means God works through. Okay, so we have the center of John's message, and we have something about the power of John's message. And now we'll just say one more thing. We'll say something about John's conviction, the conviction which underpins his message. And this is going to be verses 30 to 34. Um, we're going to set it all in that context. There's, there's much we could slow down and say about all this, but we're going to put it all together in this, in this way. So, so in terms of, of the immediate context, remember what, what's happening here. Jesus is walking toward John. Uh, John's in, engaged in, in preaching, uh, apparently, because he's declaring something here. Uh, so, so John speaks about Jesus as the Lamb of God as he's walking toward him. And then jo John goes on further to speak about Jesus, and he does so in a way that, that's almost autobiographical in terms of how John understands his own ministry. Um, so, so in verse 30, if, if you look at that, we, we actually have an instance of John saying what, what we were already told earlier on in John's prologue that John said. Remember? So, so we have this real life instance of John pointing to Jesus here saying, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then he goes on to say, this is the one I told you about. After me comes one who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. Remember how how we were already told this is the kind of thing John kept saying. Well, John, John says it here, right? John speaks to the eternality, to the supremacy of Jesus, the higher place that Jesus occupies. Um, John, you remember, has already said that he's not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. So Jesus is the exalted one because he exists eternally before me, John says. And then from here, we have this kind of autobiography where as, as Jesus is appearing on the scene, John basically talks about what underpins his own conviction about his Christ-centered message. So in verse 31, John says, I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Which is, which is quite a statement to make. I, I didn't know Jesus? What does that mean? Later on in verse 33, he's going to say it again. I didn't know him. Well, you quit saying that, John, because we thought that was the whole point of you existing. Right? But he says it twice. I didn't know him. And that strikes us as strange uh, for a few reasons. One, John was Jesus' cousin. We know that from the beginning of Luke's gospel. So, so what, is, what does John mean by this, that he doesn't know Jesus? Uh, well, there's, there's a couple ways we can understand this. Uh, pra practically, we know John was born to his parents. John the Baptist was when they were advanced in years. So it could be that in, in, in John's very young days, his parents died and and there's speculation that John was raised by a group called the Essenes. They, 
They regularly took in orphans and they were quite devout in their ascetic lifestyle. In fact, some of John's strange habits, the way he dresses, what he eats, those kinds of things uh, reflect that, uh, that, that kind of culture. And they were, known, they were known for taking orphans in. So it could be that John didn't know Jesus as, as in, as in he, was, he, he was testifying to the Messiah, but he didn't really know Jesus at all because he'd had no connection with Jesus over all the years of growing up. He, did, he didn't know. Or maybe John just means that while he might have relationally known Jesus, he didn't know Jesus was the one. He didn't know Jesus was the unique Son of God, the Messiah. Either way, in verse 31, John directly tells us that he wasn't clear Jesus was the Messiah when he began his ministry, baptizing, preparing Israel for the Messiah. He didn't know Jesus was the guy. But something changed. In verse 32, John recounts the instance, ultimately, of Jesus' coming to him to be baptized. But he said that I, he saw us, the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and resting on Jesus. So there was this experiential instance in which John visibly recognized the unique reality of God the Holy Spirit resting on and empowering Jesus. And while John didn't know Jesus at that time, verse 33, he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So put this autobiography together here. The one who sent John to baptize, in other words, God. God's word came to John and said, the one who you see the Spirit come upon, he's the one. So the reference Jesus baptizing in the Spirit, that's a reference back to Ezekiel, uh, speaking about the fullness of the new covenant promise that God is going to make, which is going to come through the Messiah. It, it, it's a biblical theology way of saying, here's the one who's going to come and bring the blessings I've been promising. Jesus is that one. He's the Messiah. And God says to John, when you see the Spirit rest upon him, that's the one. And so as a result of this experience of seeing Jesus confirmed by, by God's own word to John, John sees this event. What, 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 what does that do to John? Except verse 34, we see that John now says, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So he saw that happen. Now I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. What God said has proved true. I've seen and heard that this is the Son. So, so if we just put together what's going on there for, for John, the Word of God came clarifying this experience that John is going to have, which compelled him in his conviction to witness directly to Jesus. That's what's going on there. So, so we have what underpins John's conviction as a prophet here. God spoke to me, and what he said I would see I saw, and so I testify, I witness to the, to the identity of Christ. Jesus is the one. And, and while John's experience, again, is obviously, obviously extremely unique, there is something that we can learn from his own spiritual autobiography here when it comes to our own witness. Because our witness to Jesus is grounded in God's word about Jesus coming to us. In our case, through the scriptures. That's God's word coming to us. And as that word proves true, right? God's word came to John and he saw what God said he would see and so he testified. Well, things are different, that there is a similarity in the, there and that God's word through the scriptures comes to us Here's my son. Here's what's true about my son. And that word proves true. And as a result, we testify, we witness. We, and we just think about the way this works out in our lives. This underpins our conviction. 
Maybe, for example, we think about how God's word comes to us and, and we find that he's, he says to us through the scriptures that in Jesus Christ we are going to find rest for our souls. He speaks that way to us. And in the course of our life, we do find that as we come to know Jesus, it's not that all the hardship is removed, it's not that all the, even the chaos can be removed from our lives at times, but there is a profound sense of rest I have knowing I'm secured with the God who made me because of Jesus. God says Jesus is the one who gives rest to our souls. We go through stuff and, and we come to that reality ourselves. That is something very true for me. And as a result, what do we do? Well, we see and testify, don't we? We, we, we begin to testify to the fact that Jesus is the one who can provide extraordinary rest. Or we go through those dark seasons and we have Psalm 23 fresh in our mind. Here's the one who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. And we go through those valleys of the shadow of death where hardship comes, things maybe we never could imagine facing we're going through. But we're told by God's word that the shepherd is going to be the one who leads me through that and brings me safely to the other side and who doesn't abandon me. And I get through those things safely to the other side. And I have God's word that told me this is who Christ is. I have the reality of my life now where I have felt experience with that truth. Jesus is the one who has sustained me and kept me. He hasn't left me. And what do we do on the other side of that? Well, we respond by speaking about it, don't we? We respond by telling people, testifying to the truth of who God is. And so we see that underpinning John's own ministry is, is something unique, certainly, in that he exercised this prophetic office, but it's not so strange in terms of how God regularly works on the hearts of us as his witnesses. The word of God points to the Son of God. I experientially very much realize the relief that comes in saying, okay, Jesus, life is, my life is over to you. I need you to save me. I need you to maintain me. I need you to be the one who secures my hope. And as we walk through that process, we find a sense of peace that then compels us in our witness. This witnessing thing is not a wooden thing in our life. It's not just, I do it because I ought to. Let me tell you about Jesus. You know, it's something I'm supposed to do, so we've been friends for 27 minutes. Now I ought to bring, I ought to bring this up. No, that's not how our witness works. Our witness flows out of the fact that we have a felt experience of Christ's own kindness to us in so many ways in our lives. And partly, partly I speak about myself in this, partly I find my witness to others lessening and waning because I have forgot to recall how the word of God about Jesus has become so real for me in so many instances of my own life. Would I not be so much more compelled in my witness if I would just pause to reflect on Jesus' kind, sustaining hand through times when I thought I would not be sustained? And then I would be, I would be compelled to speak about it because what a glorious thing uh, has, has happened to me in the, in the knowing of Christ, the relieving of my conscience, the compelling of life uh, through very difficult times. And so uh, John's conviction is there for us in, a, in an autobiographical kind of way, but in a way that we can relate to which is helpful for us as we think about this, this task of witnessing. So in all this, we have John's message. Right? It's centered on Jesus who takes away sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Right? The power is in the message, not in the perfection of the witnesser. Right? The power is in the message. And conviction comes to proclaim that message as we see God's word about Jesus prove true in our own lives. And we're compelled then to testify to the reality of of who Christ is. And so we, we go witness. We're, we're moved by this. By this truth. And so we're thankful for these things. That help us uh, consider our own calling. As Jesus was sent. So we're sent. 
and we want to consider that well. John's example is helpful to us, and we'll, uh, we'll continue to think through it next week in the remainder of this section. So let's, let's pray together. Uh, Father, we are thankful for your word, and we pray that uh, we would be uh, faithful to respond to your kindness in our lives and witness to Jesus Christ, that we'd be compelled by that, not, not merely out of a sense of obligation, though we are, but we would be compelled by it because of the, the genuine peace, the genuine rest, the genuine comfort that comes in knowing uh, Christ is our Savior, the one who's removed all condemnation from us, uh, that we would be able to live our lives in a way that reflect that kind of peace, and we would be able to speak about that kind of peace from our place of rest. We ask that you would help us in this way, ultimately for the glory of Jesus' own name. Amen.